You're listening to a resource from the Field Church in Mandeville, Louisiana. It is our joy to glorify God by treasuring Jesus in the preaching of His Word. We pray this resource will be a tool used to aid in your relationship with Christ in addition to your local church. Blood of Jesus, nothing but the blood. Nothing but the blood of Jesus, nothing but the blood. Nothing but the blood of Jesus, nothing but the blood. Nothing but the blood of Jesus, nothing but the blood. Amen. Good morning, everybody. So glad that you are here this morning. So glad to have you. If you have your Bible, please open it to Luke chapter 13, verses 1 through 5. Grab a Bible, uh, your Bible, hopefully, that you have one. And if you don't have one, um, there will be Bibles in the basket under the row that's right in front of you. Look under the row in front of you. There will be a basket there. Grab a Bible, use it, uh, especially today as we look at his word, you're going to need it. And uh, if you don't have a Bible of your own, I uh, would encourage you just take that with you, uh, write your name in it, call it your own and use it. Um, and uh, we want you to have a Bible. You need uh, to have one uh, to look at the word of God. But before we get into the text that the Lord has given me, given us for today, um, and as we continue, uh, before we get into this book and continue verse by verse through the book of Luke, let's recite our corporate monthly memory verse, okay? Our, our corporate monthly memory verse. Um, it's up on the screen, okay? And, and Pastor Josh said last week that I was going to make you all recite it from memory. I'm feeling nice today, okay? So we're going to, uh, we're going to read it uh, together out loud. Sorry, Tanner, I just... This, Kind of feeling out of place with it. Just turn it down just a little bit. Thank you. All right, ready? Let's read Psalm 63, verses 1 through 4 up on the screen. This is our monthly memory verse. Oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you. As in a dry and weary land where there is no water. So I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory. Because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. So I will bless you as long as I live. In your name, I will lift up my hands. What an incredible passage. Now listen, we're going to spend some time on this passage this morning because uh, the, most, uh, the majority of what we need to do in our verses in Luke and we're going to be able to do it in a short amount of time because of the content that's there, the information um, that's there uh, to us. And so I want to spend a little bit of time on this memory verse. We don't do this all the time. We sometimes just recite it and sometimes move on. But I want to spend some time here this morning because I think it is so important for you, for me, for our church. Okay, so let me just tell you uh, that I, I really want to encourage you to memorize this passage. Okay, to write it on a card, put it on the screensaver of your phone, that you would be shaped by it, right? That you'll be shaped by this. Um, recite it as a family together before you go to bed at night. Uh, talk about it. Use this as a memory verse for your family before you go to bed. And, and I encourage you eat, even each month as we do these memory verses, as we, as we memorize these verses, that you would um, every day, Every day of each month, recite this together as a family before you put your family to bed. Listen, Bible reading is good. So you need to read your Bible every day. But it's also very important that in addition to your Bible reading every morning, that where you see new things every morning, new mercies in his word, every morning you learn things that you didn't know before, right? It's also necessary that as a Christian, you meditate on verses and on passages for prolonged periods of time, okay? Um, you, day after day, for a month straight, for instance, right? We need to see, you need to do this for a prolonged period of time because when you do that, you will begin to see things that you didn't see before you started meditating upon it. Listen, your heart becomes awakened to the truth of a memory verse in a way that it wasn't the first time that you read it, 
right? Um, to understand it, to have knowledge about it. Listen, can I tell you, it's impossible, impossible for you to mine the riches of God's truth by looking at on the surface of a passage, quickly looking at it, reading it, glancing at it. God has inspired difficult texts. You say, why is there so many hard texts in the Bible? Because God is so uh, unsearchable, his ways, his character. We have to mine deep to uncover all of its riches, all of the riches of God, who he is, the way he works, what he's doing in the world and in eternity, etc. These texts have deep, deep meaning to them that must be mined for because God in his character and who he is and what he's doing is deep. So you can't not, it would be impossible for you to, to skim on the surface, read a Bible verse and say, here's its truth, right? You need to meditate on it. So listen, you have to have understanding and knowledge. Can I tell you something? Understanding and knowledge comes from lingering long over the same text for an extended period of time. That's when you will uncover its truth. Rather than reading a passage once, like a daily Bible reading, which is good, and then moving on the next day. Okay, Joshua 1.8 says this. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall what? On it day and night, so that you may be careful to do all that according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous. Then you will have good success. And uh, so let me explain. Let me spend some time with this particular one. This is going to take you know, half our time today, because I want to, I want us to learn from this. Pastor Josh mentioned last week that these are deep words of devotion from David. David is expressing here deep words of love for the Lord, love for the Lord. This is what he's expressing while in the wilderness fleeing from his son, Absalom. He's running from his son who wants to take the throne and wants to kill him. And he's in the wilderness and he's expressing deep love, devotion to God. Right? Side note, is that what your life looks like when you are in a place of, of desperation and need? Right? Or is it, you know, instead of expressing love to the Lord in that way or talking with him or singing to him or reciting his truth, um, you're, you're going to your text messages to text your friends. Or you're going to, uh, you know, uh, your Facebook wall and making a post. Does they call it Facebook walls anymore? I don't know. That's what they originally called it, right? And so you can express um, kind of passive aggressively to the rest of the world what you're going through, right? Where do you go? Do you go to God? This is what David is doing. And David is speaking, I want you to notice this, in present tense. Present tense. Meaning what he's going through in the moment, he is speaking of this reality currently in his life. Many psalms are in past tense. That means they speak of the past. They remember what God has done. Many psalms are in future tense. That is to look forward to or look ahead to what God will do. This is in present tense. All three actually can be noticed in this very psalm. You want to know how, how perfect this is? God slices this thing perfectly. Verses 1 through 5 in Psalm 63 are in present tense, seeking God. In verses 6 through 8, the very next verses are in past tense, remembering God's works. And then the following verses, the last verses, verses 9 through 11 in the psalm are in future tense, anticipating what God will do. All three seen here. So these verses are in present tense. That means David is expressing devotion for the Lord, seeking his presence in the midst of wilderness, running from the enemy, life being threatened. How wonderful is that? Right? So what I want us to see today, in light of that fact, in light of these things that I just told you, I want us to note calling a roadmap to worship. A roadmap to worship. Now, listen, I want you to write these down. We're going to have three specific points from this text. I want us to see this because this is so necessary. 
Whether we are in a place of desperation, whether we are on the run from a son who's trying to kill us, which I hope that's true of none of you, or whether you are um, in a place of, of needing God to provide for your family, whatever it may be, that you would be in a place of worship. You would come consistently to a place of worship in your life. That's how we need to live. That's why God created the world. As I said two weeks ago, if you weren't here, go listen to the introduction of the sermon two weeks ago when we talked about why God created us for his glory to be in worship to him, right? So listen, this roadmap to worship, just turn with me to to the psalm that we're speaking of so we can reference it while we're talking about it. Psalm 63, Psalm 63, And uh, we're going to look at verses one through four in it. Psalm 63. Now, again, David ends up here in a place of worship. Listen to me. Whether you're on the run from your son, whether you're just half-hearted in your devotion to God, listen, whether you're unloving, whether you're tired, whether you're failing, and I need to get to a place of worshiping God, whether I'm cold or apathetic, I'm spiritually numb, I'm spiritually dry, I'm spiritually uninformed. Maybe I'm worried or anxious about my future. I'm hopeless. I'm fearful. Maybe I'm just too busy. I'm faithless. I have some sin in my life. Maybe I'm facing persecution. I'm sad. I'm disappointed. I'm directionless. Maybe my marriage does not look how God wants it to look. Maybe I'm immature in my faith. Maybe I'm disobedient, inadequate, inferior, bitter. I've failed. How do I get from all those places to a life of worship? And seeking God, God's presence in my life. Well, we, th- we see this. Just, I mean, it's just so clearly. Number one, it starts with a desperation for God. It starts with a desperation for God. This is where we see this start. Here's what verse one says. Oh, God, David writes, you are my God. Earnestly, I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. Now, this is where it starts. Desperation. David had a reason to be desperate, didn't he? I mean, he's on the run in the wilderness. His son's going to kill him, right? He's got a whole people that he's leading, a whole nation. And everything's at stake here. But listen, More than anything else, while he was desperate, David was desperate for God. We don't see him say, I'm desperate, God, that you would give me my kingship and that I would hold on to it. And I'm desperate that I would keep the kingdom and I'm desperate that you would give me the riches and I'm desperate that my enemies wouldn't prevail over me. He's saying, I'm desperate for you, God, right? But more than anything else in being desperate from God, David wanted to have God. Can I tell you that desperation, you say, well, what about this? Let me understand this desperation. Desperation can be brought about by the Lord's hand of discipline, right? Number one, can be brought about by the Lord's hand of discipline. Praise God for saving souls from destruction by bringing about his hand of discipline in the life of a believer. When he makes you desperate through discipline, thank you, Lord. You, when you know how to know, measure your spiritual maturity? Do you love God's nearness, his presence, being close to him more than you love the absence of suffering? Because then you will praise God when suffering comes because it is of more value to you to be near to God and to be like God than to have no suffering in your life. The world consistently speaks in such a way that suffering is the worst possible thing. Christians speak in a way that says being far from God is the worst possible thing. Thank you for your discipline, Lord. Right? So discipline can be brought about by, I mean, desperation can be brought about by the Lord's discipline. Secondly, desperation can be brought about by being spiritually healthy. (laughs) You can walk around being desperate for the Lord. You know what that means? I'm spiritually healthy. I'm in a good place. I'm always desperate for him. Right? And thirdly, let me tell you, desperation can be cultivated. Cultivated. 
If this is not where you are, if you're not desperate for God, then you need to pray and say, God, make me desperate for you. You must want him more than you want anything else. How do you cultivate this? Fasting. This is why fasting works. Fasting doesn't earn your status before God. Fasting makes you desperate for God, thereby expediting your devotion to God. When you take away whatever it is that you so most depend on, most lean on, most find comfort in, most love, and you start figuring out where you're going to find your stability because you're so often depending on it, and you fill that void with God himself and his word, it expedites your dependence upon God. It's what fasting does. It doesn't earn your standing or your favor before God. It just expedites your dependence upon God. Prayer, God, make me change my taste buds so that I want you. (laughs) So what does he say here? Listen, you're my God, meaning you're over my life. You're in charge of me. That's you're my God. I'm under your authority. Secondly, he says, my soul inside spiritually, it thirsts for you. That's strange. You ever like pour water into your soul? What is he saying here? My soul has this insatiable desire for you that feels as if it can't be quenched. Like I'm just thirsty and I just keep on drinking for you. And I'm, and, and I'm, it, it's, it's not feeling like it's being quenched. My soul thirsts for you, right? I'm thirsty for you, God. You are what is going to quench me, right? And this is his soul. This is inside. This is spiritual. And what does he say he's thirsty for, his soul? For you. (laughs) Not the products. The person. Right? The person of God. That's what he's desperate for. That's what he's thirsty for. And then he speaks of not the inside, but the outside. My flesh faints for you. The external, the physical. For for you. Again, for you. Meaning, if I don't have you, I'm going to pass out and die. Right? This is what he is saying. If I'm going to remain alive, I need you. And the analogy is closed up here where he says, as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. Like, you want to say, like, David, you're being a little dramatic. Right? That's the picture. (laughs) You're in a desert and you need water. There's no land. There's no water anywhere in this land. Right? You're that desperate for God. It's a little dramatic. No, it's not dramatic. It's accurate. It's accurate. It appropriately describes his desperation for God. That's why he uses the analogy. That's where this starts. One time I was in college and and uh, and during my years of undergrad, I went to a a, I went I went to a a vacation with some friends, and I remember their families there, everything, and I just I remember like every minute of that day. I just, I couldn't wait till everybody else went to bed because all I wanted to do was sit alone and read the Bible. And I remember just reading the whole book of Job that night. And I don't know why it's, that's the spirit of the Lord that prompts this desperation, right? But that's all I wanted. You ask people at the Nehemiah project, the leaders of the Nehemiah project, what makes for a successful participant or an unsuccessful participant. And that comes from one who is who comes in so desperate for God to move and to change his life and that he would have him above everything else that he is he's going to take whatever God says and whatever God wants to do in order to have God. That's what makes someone successful there. If someone comes in and figure, thinks kind of I got it on my own like I want a little bit of this but I want to kind of keep my life too done, right? Unsuccessful. So, number 1, Ask, cultivate, prayer, fasting. Ask God to move in this. Bring discipline, if necessary, to create a desperation for God. Is that where you are? Number two, it moves towards looking at God. It starts with desperation for God. It moves, secondly, to looking at God. Now, stay with me, because this is the most important. Okay? Listen, verse two says this. Read it. So I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory. 
Notice one big word there. What is the big word? What is it? What? That's a big word too, okay? It's a trick question because they're all big words. It's the word. So, so, come on. Right? I'm so desperate for you. So, here's what I've done to quench this desperation. I have looked upon you in the sanctuary to quench the soul's thirst, to uphold one's physical life, to keep me alive. Remedy, looking upon you. That's what satisfies my soul. Sanctuary, place of presence of God where the law of God is opening. But listen, not just, not just uh, looking, but he says beholding. Not just glancing, but just think about this word, beholding. That's another important word. You guys got it right. Don't worry. Every word you said. It came from here. It was important, okay? Beholding. Like you're just looking at something, seeking, seeing, considering, looking, meditating upon, observing, witnessing, watching. Your power, your glory, meaning this, what you have revealed about yourself. Now, how do we do this? How do we do this? We start, God, God, make me desperate if I want to be in a place of worship. God, God moved to looking at you to quench that desperation. How do we do this? You just close your eyes. Imagine. Do I look around? See if I can see God? Right? No. Because one of the attributes of God, if we talk about the doctrine of God, is that God is invisible. Right? That's one of his qualities. Jesus is the image of God. He comes and reveals who God is through coming to earth. Anybody tells you that they know what Jesus looks like, they're lying to you. And don't believe them. They're leading you astray. Or what God looks like, or they saw Jesus somehow in their mind, they're worshiping. That's one of the parts of the Ten Commandments. Don't make for yourself any graven image. Don't try to make anything in my image. You don't know what I look like. You're worshiping another God. Right? You don't see him physically with your eyes. He's invisible. Look, J Jesus is the image of the invisible God. He comes when he comes on earth. He displays to us what God is like. But David wasn't with Jesus in this moment. We're not with Jesus. So how do we do that? Look, Colossians 1.15 says he's the image, Jesus, of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. When you're in heaven, you're going to see him, Jesus, face to face and know what he looks like. David was not with Jesus physically. God is invisible. John 4 says this. God is what? Spirit. Those who worship him must worship in spirit and what? Okay, we're getting close, but let me show you this. 1 Timothy 1.17, to the king of the ages, immortal invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. John 1, 18, no one has ever, the only God who is at the Father's side. Jesus, though, has made him known. Jesus talks, though, about seeing and perceiving and blindness. So what does it mean to see him? Well, when the New Testament talks about seeing after Jesus has ascended, it talks about seeing with the eyes of our, what? Hearts. That's how you see. You see with the eyes of your heart. What does that mean? Knowledge. Understanding enlightened by God's revealed truth. God's revealed truth. You come to a knowledge, an understanding, you're enlightened by, you receive, you accept, you believe what you've read, what you've heard from God's revealed truth about who he is. And that's what it means to spiritually see, right? That's how you see with the eyes of your heart. Look at this, Ephesians 1, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation how do you have wisdom and revelation, spiritual wisdom and revelation in the what? What? Knowledge of him. Having the eyes of your hearts enlightened. You get that? Knowledge enlightens the heart. That's seeing with spiritual eyes. Meaning this, that you may what? What is it? 
No. What is the hope to which he has called you? What are the riches of his glorious inheritance? And these are all the things you find out from knowing through his revelation with the eyes of your heart, right? And his truth, the riches and the glorious inheritance and the saints, you know what's coming to you because the truth is God's revealed truth. The immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, you know about that. How do you know about that? Because it's revealed truth according to the working of his great might. You know about his great might. How do you know about that? Because it's revealed truth that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand of the heavenly places. How do you know about that? Do you see it? No. You read it. He told you about it in his truth. Far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, above every name that is named, not only in this age, the age to, but also the age to come. How do you know about that? God's revealed truth. You've looked upon it. So what does it mean? It means to hear, read, have knowledge, understand, be enlightened by, receive, accept, and believe God's revealed truth. By the Spirit of God. Psalm 119, look at this. Open my eyes that I may behold wondrous things out of your law. What does he mean by that? You mean like you're blind and you're trying to read? He's writing. He's writing this. So does he can't see it? No. He's saying, open my eyes. Let me see with the eyes of my heart. Let me understand what you're saying. Let me have knowledge about what's in your word that I may behold wondrous things out of your what? Law. Right? It's not physical eyes. It's knowledge, spiritual understanding. Second Peter 1 says this, his divine power has granted us all things that pertain to life and godliness. How has he given you everything you need spiritually? How? Through knowledge. Through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. Knowing God, who he is, what he's doing, what he's done, what he will do, comes through his revealed truth. Look at this. Second Peter 1 says this. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge Whoever lacks these qualities, watch this, watch this, is so nearsighted that he is blind. This equates having no knowledge with nearsightedness or blindness, or then forgetting with being nearsighted or blind. You catching this? You got it? This is, what it, this is how you see. This is how you see. So the solution to your desperation for God is looking at God, beholding God through meditating upon God's revealed truth in his word. Not just imagining it, not just seeing it from creation, although I'm sure David saw it from creation, but where was David saying that he looked upon God? In the, what? Sanctuary. What's in the sanctuary? Stay with me. What's in the sanctuary? The law of God. I'm sure he looked around. The sanctuary is beautiful. Whether it means God's sanctuary, I'm sure that's beautiful too. But David is saying he is in a place of worship because he was desperate from God, for God. And then he looked at God, beholding him through truth. Can I tell you, even in the word of God, you only see a, just a little small portion of what God's like. You know that? Like, even now, what you see of God in his word, you don't have full knowledge of him. In heaven, your faith will become what? What? Sight. You will see, you will see, and your worship will be for eternity. But look at this. I want you to read this real quick before we do our third verse, our third point. First Corinthians 13. But when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I, what? Know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have fully been known. Listen, seeing is equated with knowing here. That's one point. Second point is that what's the, what's the picture of this childlikeness? It means this. You ever talk to a kid who thinks they know the whole story, right? Thinks they know the bigger picture and you say, you don't really know the whole picture here. You know what's going on, right? Well, here's what this means. What you know about God, even from his revealed truth in his word, you think you know the whole picture? Guess what? You don't. Right? That's the idea here. So, desperation for God. You want a lifelong worship? You want a lifelong state of worship? Being in a lifelong state of worship? One, 
you create this desperation for God. You ask God to, to bring about this desperation. You cultivate this desperation for God. Secondly, then you look upon God in his revealed truth in his word. And then thirdly, there's a worship of God. Desperation for God, looking at God leads to a worship of God. Verses three through four. Because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. So I will bless you as long as I live. In your name, I will lift up my hand. Listen, I love this. Look at verse three. There's one big word again that starts verse three. I'll give you a hint. It's the very first word. Okay, what is it? Because. Verse three. Verse four or so. That's another good one. But verse three, because. Meaning this. Here's what I found out when I looked at you. Right? I was desperate for you, then I looked at you, and then because this is what I found out, your steadfast love is better than life. I found that out. Therefore, my lips will what? Worship. Worship. It's better than life. It's going to result in my lips praising you. I've seen, I've come to a knowledge, I've concluded in my heart, I even feel in my heart. Praise, worship, so much praise based upon this knowledge of you. And then he goes uh, so far to say in verse four, so again, I will bless you or worship you or praise you as long as I live. He's making decision for worship for a lifetime based upon what he's found out. It's not just now, in your name. What does in your name mean? Who you are, what I found out about who you are. Your name represents who you are. I am. I will continually lift up my hands. Right? That's praise. That's worship. Now, I want to encourage you in that. That's a fitting posture for a heart desperate for God, knowledgeable about God, and therefore in worship of God. Let me say that again. Hands raised is a fitting posture for one who has been desperate for God, has had knowledge of God, and therefore is in worship of God. That's fitting posture. Can I tell you? I'd love for you to lift your hands more in worship when we sing. Because you know what that tells me? I got people who are desperate for God, knowledgeable about God, and therefore in worship of God. That's a fitting posture, right? That's why we, it would be appropriate that we would do that. Not based on no truth. There's people who do that too. But let's take the best of both worlds. Let's lift our hands. Let's sing in praise. Let's worship based upon the knowledge that we have from the revealed truth of God and his word. Right? This is the roadmap to worship. Desperation for God moves to a meditation upon God through his revealed truth. And it results in a lifelong worship of God. So, sermon one, done. Now, let's move to sermon two. Our text that the Lord has given us for today, got about half our time left as we continue on verse by verse through the book of Luke. Read with me, Luke chapter 13. You can turn back there, okay? If you, if you went to Psalm 63, Luke 13, one through five. This is my last week. I had to talk about that verse, so uh, I had to do it. I had to take the time for us. In our memory verse. We won't do that every time, but we need that information before we move on to a new memory verse. All right, Luke 13, one through five. Y'all ready? All right, shake it out. Stand up, stretch. Shake the arms. One hour a week, you can do it. Ready? Here we go. There were some present at the very time, at that very time, who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And he answered them, do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or those 18 on whom the tower of Siloam fell and killed them. Do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No. I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Now, stay with me. What we're seeing here, what we're seeing here is a failure to see one's own guilt before God 
and therefore one's urgent need for repentance and faith in Christ. Let me say that again. Here's the main point, the authorial intent of what we're reading here. A failure to see one's own guilt before God and therefore one's need for repentance and faith in Christ. That's the main point. That's the particular doctrine or teaching that's being made known here. It's a failure to see, understand, have knowledge of, agree with God about one's own guilt before God and then therefore a failure to see one's urgent need to respond in repentance and faith in Christ. It's a failure to see that you stand in a place of accusation before God based on the law, judgment coming, thinking that it might apply to somebody else, that you're okay, that you will not be judged or perish, or that this is for worse offenders. That you do not stand accused before God. You therefore have no need to reconcile with God or to make things right with God or to settle with God and therefore you're coming before the king or before the judge will be fine but it's others who will have to settle this account who have to figure out their own sinfulness before God they're worse off and therefore when they come before the king and judge they will be judged or they will have to pay and have to pay every last bit of their eternal separation from God. But it's a, it's a failure to see one's own guilt, that this is not for somebody who's worse than me, that this is an urgent need for me, for everyone included, to come under the full realization that we are guilty before God, that I am guilty before God, and that I have to submit to his truth. The sinfulness or guilt before God. The impending threat of judgment. That if, listen, listen. It's a failure to see that if I am not acquitted. If I, my sin is not atoned for. If there's no propitiation for my sin. If there's no penal substitution. Then I have no forgiveness before God and I stand guilty. And this passage is declaring that this is, listen, here's the key, everybody's issue. This is everybody's issue. That's why I have titled this message, The Threat That Faces Everyone. That's the main point. This is the threat that faces everyone. I use this title to make sure I show, show cohesiveness with Pastor Josh's message last week, which is necessary if I'm going to make this main point clear and accurate. Because the verses preceding this, like so many preceding this, like so many verses, are directly linked to the verses that proceed after them, right? Last week describes this eternal threat of judgment becomes guilt before uh, of sin that listen he says this in these verses in, in verses 57 through 59 why do you not judge rightly meaning this why do you not see yourself rightly this is what Jesus is saying to them why don't you see rightly you're not judging yourself rightly Based upon God's law, the accuser, you're guilty. You have to settle with the magistrate, the king, settle with the judge before you end up having to suffer every last bit of eternity for your guilt before this judge. The only way you settle is through the Christ. Why do you not judge yourself rightly? He's speaking to these Jews who are not seeing their guilt before God and therefore not seeing their, their need to respond in repentance and faith in Christ. And so he's saying that last week describes this internal, eternal threat of judgment because of their guilt, their sin. And today, Jesus is following that up with the fact that this threat, listen, 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 this threat faces every human soul on the planet. That's what he's saying today. This threat faces every single person on the planet. Everybody. Every person on the planet. That is to say, 
Everyone is guilty of sin in light of God's law. That is to say, everyone will be judged by God. Everyone has only one option to settle that standing of guilt before God, and that is to repent, receive God's forgiveness through the Christ who pays the penalty on behalf of sinners. Everyone must do this with every bit of urgency. And if they do not recognize this, repent and respond. They will be at enmity with God for all of eternity, and they will spend eternity paying their eternal debt, a permanent spiritual death in the place the Bible calls hell. Everybody. This is not only true. Listen, listen. This is not only true for the worst, quote unquote, the worst of sinners. There are none who meets God's standards, none who keeps God's law, none have earned the right standing before God, none are right because of their lineage, their spiritual heritage, their religious position in society, none are righteous. The law accuses everyone. The law itself, listen to me, stay with me, you got to understand this doctrine of humanity and sin. The law gives us knowledge of God's holy demands, thereby making it clear that we miss the mark. Everybody, every person on the face of the planet, everybody in this church, everybody in Mandeville, everybody on the North Shore, everybody in the greater New Orleans area, everybody in Louisiana, everybody in the whole nation, everybody on the whole face of the earth, everyone who's ever lived or will ever live. Everybody, none are righteous in God's sight since the law accuses everybody. And to judge oneself rightly by God's law would be to see the reality of your sinful condition and your guilt before God. Romans 3.23 says, for what? Have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. You know what that means? Let me tell you just briefly. Glory is God's holiness revealed. Holiness is God's glory concealed. So who God is in his perfection revealed is glory. When it's visible, when it's seen, when, you can, when it's told, when you can understand it, that's his glory. So you were made for the glory of God, meaning you were made in his what? To reflect him accurately. And guess what we do? We fall short of reflecting who God is perfectly. You fall short of the glory of God. James 2.10 says, for whoever keeps the whole law but fails at one point has been guilty of all of it. All lawbreakers. First Kings 8.46 says this, for there is no one who does not sin. That's pretty clear, isn't it? What about this? Stay with me. Psalm 143.2. For who? Who? No one living is righteous before you. Ecclesiastes 7.20. Surely there is not a righteous man on the earth who does good and never sins. This is one of the main book of the, uh, points of the book of Romans. To build a case, especially in the first few chapters, to reveal that we are not up to the standard of God's law, but we've broken it, which reveals that we are all sinners. That's the whole point of like the first three books, three chapters. Therefore, listen, stay with me. Listen, this threat faces every human soul. All need to respond to Christ to have their sins forgiving, forgiven. Let me tell you, listen, this is the world's issue. Let me give you a doctrine about the world. Listen, this is the world's issue. You got to say, you got to understand this. This is the condition of the world. This is the issue of the world. Some say, why doesn't everyone receive Jesus as God's Christ and so be saved? It's free. It's free. You got a free gift. Sins forgiven all of eternity with joy, with God forever. Why wouldn't you accept that? Well, here's the issue. It starts here. First, you would have to realize, the world would have to realize their own sinful condition before God and their need for salvation. And the Bible describes the world as being blind to this condition. My life looks pretty in line with the world. Therefore, I don't see anything wrong with it. 
failing to see that God's law is the standard, not the world. Does this make sense? So the world has to recognize a sinful condition and also that this is not just somebody else's problem. The person I see on the news who commits murder, the person who goes to prison, the bad person. I've always thought I had a pretty good heart. God knows my heart. I've done pretty well. I just haven't done these things. That is not the truth. Right? That is not the, that is not the condition of every soul on the planet. The, sin, the condition of every soul on the planet is sinful. And so if the world, let's take the North Shore for an example, would not say, listen, I'm doing pretty good. I got a good heart. We got a good family. I'm doing pretty good with them. Our, our lives are pretty good. We're pretty moral. We have a good house. We have a good car. We have a good job. We have a good family, etc. And we're good. I, I mean, I know some, some vague information about the Bible. I know some, some vague spiritual information about Jesus. I, it's probably good enough. I don't really understand this very deeply at all, but I understand some kind of portion of it, right? But, and so I'm going to do fine and we're going to keep living how we're going to live. But everybody, like there's other people and I know that like they're like, you might not say it explicitly, but they're the ones who are guilty before God. They're the ones, people are going to have to repent. Yes, those people. Yes, they need to change. Those people, those people, those people, etc. This is the condition of the world, right? The especially in America. And we don't see Christ, listen, we don't see Christ for who he is because we have not been humbled by this important information of our own sinful condition. Humility has a way of letting you see differently, doesn't it? You say your family's a nuisance, and then when you get a life-threatening disease, you see them for what they really are, which is a blessing. If you would understand your own sinful condition, your view of Christ would change dramatically. Blinders would be taken off. It's like someone standing on like the beach shore and looking at a life raft and kind of assessing it and saying, color, it's just not a really good color for a life, life raft, right? Uh, the material, it's a little scratchy, right? And then what would be the difference if you were drowning in the middle of the sea and that life raft was thrown to you? The response would be very different. John 16 says this, when he comes, this is what the Holy Spirit must do in the world. This is what you must pray for. He will convict the world concerning sin. This is why the Holy Spirit comes to make this clear and righteousness and judgment, meaning this, look, concerning sin, because they do not believe in me, Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father. He's not there anymore. You can't see him physically with your own eyes. You don't know what righteousness looks like. The Holy Spirit's got to reveal this truth through the knowledge of him and his word and know that what the standard is and what sin is and how you fall short of it. And then concerning judgment, because it's coming, right? This is what must happen. And let me just tell you before we just say one point about these texts, this, these verses, they, they speak for themselves. This faces the religious and the liberal alike. Okay, religious, no need to repent, good before God, right standing, moral, I, on my own, I'm going to make it. Liberal, spiritually liberal, right? I, I love my sin. I don't think that it's that bad, and I think other people are worse. I mean, this is just across the spectrum. It doesn't matter where you're at in your religion. It faces everybody. So let's move into the division of the matter. One point, and it's just, I'm just saying the same thing in different ways. The urgent need to come to a knowledge of your own guilt before God and therefore your need for repentance and faith in Christ. The urgent need to come to a knowledge of your own guilt before God and therefore your need for repentance and faith in Christ. This is for all of us, me included. Okay, me included. This is, we must come to this understanding. Verses one through five. Once again, there were some present at the very time who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. He answered them, do you think that these Galileans are worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or those 18 on whom the Tower of Siloam fell and killed them. Do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Let me give you this picture in the next 10 or 15 minutes that we have. So listen, the last two analogies that Jesus has spoken of Listen, listen, spiritually blind, they claim to be waiting for the Christ, you know, you're hypocrites. You're claiming you're waiting for Christ. He's right in front of you. You're missing it. 
You failed to interpret the time. You say you've been waiting for him. You're not waiting for him, right? You want someone who's gonna affirm your righteousness. Second analogy that we just read last week, you're, you're guilty. You're not judging yourselves rightly. Before the law, you're guilty. You gotta settle with the accuser, God. Through, through me, God's Christ, or you will pay you the penalty for all time, right? In response to that, there were some present. The NASB says on the same occasion. That's Luke's way of telling us this is connected. The ESV says at that very time. That's the Bible's way of telling us what was just said is connected of, to what's being said now. Here's what they say. Yeah, here's a great example of this, Jesus. Here's a great example. Yeah, we heard what you just said, particularly those two analogies. We understand. Did you hear about the Galileans whose blood Pilate mingled with their sacrifices? Meaning, the point is, they didn't settle with Pilate, the authority, right? And therefore, they suffered the consequences for it. There's a lot of things wrong here. Like, number one, they're looking at an earthly situation instead of the eternal situation. But what Jesus gets to is the heart of the issue. I'm going to ignore that for a second. And I'm going to say the heart of the issue is that you're failing to see your own guilt, your own being accused, judgment coming your way as if it's constantly happening or going to happen to other people. You get it? They say, what a great example. Yes, Jesus, you're right. Here's what happened to those Galileans. They're missing the fact that he's speaking of an eternal truth, but they're also mainly missing the fact and what's the real heart of the issue, which is why I know that this is the heart, and then you'll see everything else, is their guilt before God is the real issue that he's addressing. He's staying with that. He's got one fixed focus. It's on, you're thinking about everybody else every time I bring about judgment or talk about judgment. You're not thinking about yourself. Yeah, did you hear about those guys? Right? And the issue here is he's trying to make them see that they stand accused. This is everybody's issue, not the worst of sinners. Them. So it says this, listen, some in the crowd. You know what that means? When they don't tell us specifically, it means it probably represents the whole. It's a general a general identification because it probably represents most of the people who are in that crowd, 10,000 people or so. They fail to see their guilt. They've been listening to what Jesus has been saying about the hypocrites, the unfaithful servants versus the faithful servants that he's come to bring division. Listen, listen, listen. He has come to bring division. We just read that a few weeks ago because... Everybody thinks that they're righteous before God based upon the law. He's coming to bring distinction. Faithful servant, unfaithful servant. He's got to bring a distinction because everything, everyone just thinks they're righteous before God based upon the law. I've come to cause division. So who is the unfaithful and who is faithful? The ones who are missing it, not interpreting the time, not catching the Messiah, and the ones who are getting it. The ones who are thinking they're accused and are not. And then at the end of this sermon, he's going to say, the fig tree, who's mine, I own the fig tree. The man who owned the fig tree, it failed to produce fruit. Meaning this, God's people who are his failed to produce the fruit of repentance and, and faith. He's, he's like, you're missing it. You're the ones who are guilty and you have to repent and be made right before God. This is what he's saying over and over and over again. And they're lacking spiritual discernment, sight. They're blind. They're failing to see their own sin that they stand accused, that they're guilty. So what's the story? Listen, Pontius Pilate, he's the fifth Roman governor of Judea. He was appointed by Tiberius in AD 26. They're telling him this story, right, of Pilate who had mingled their blood with sacrifices. He was in office until he was removed in AD 36. So a Roman governor over Judea, proud. Listen, this is what Pilate was like, proud, arrogant, full of falsehood. And at the same time, he was volatile. He lacked conviction, and he was swayed by the crowds, like just a weak leader, right? Domineering, yet swayed by the crowds. John 18 says, Jesus says, I've come into the world to bear witness of the truth. Everyone who is of me hears truth, or, uh, of the truth listens to my voice. Pilate said, what is truth? 
right? This incident mentioned in this verse, in this verses, it's got a lot of background to it. Historically, this is typical of Pilate though. Listen, he was brutal. He was insensitive and he was also vacillating between, uh, not uh, being a man of conviction. Pilate had reversed some policies of earlier governors of Judea. He starts by marching into Jerusalem, which they couldn't do. He has troops that are carrying shields with images of idolatrous things on them to mock the Jews, right? So the Jews protest. Pilate orders them to stop threatening uh, them, um, and yet they don't stop because he's threatening them. So they ignore Pilate's warnings, and Pilate threatened them with death, but he was, here's his vacillation. He was too afraid to carry out his sentence of committing mass murder upon the Jews because of what the crowds would think, what people would think. So he mocked them again by taking their very money from their temples to build the aqueduct of water that they needed in Jerusalem. Okay, you guys need water? Let me take the money from your temples to build the aqueduct. Just continual mocking of them, again, causing a protest. Pilate's soldiers beat, killed them, right? Behavior was typical of Pilate. Then these rebellious protests by the Jews increased, specifically the Galileans, who then, in response to this, were tracked by Pilate and his guards to the temple grounds where they offered sacrifices, probably during the time of the Passover, where many sacrifices would be offered, and he slaughtered them among the sacrifices, killing them, mingling their blood with the sacrifices. Listen, this is murder. This is mockery. This is, this is a disregard for human life, right? Mingling these upon the sacrifices is even a disregard for God himself. Can you imagine Pilate doing this? This is a mockery. This is what God's people were commanded to do. This is a heinous act, a sinful act. He killed God's people and he mocked God. He spit in God's face, basically saying, I'll do whatever I want to do. I'm in charge. God's not, right? So listen, what's being said by these, this crowd? Surely if they, these people suffered such a terrible act, they must have been far worse sinners than everybody else. That's what they believed. When Jesus spoke of judgment, they're constantly thinking of everybody else. To be singled out by God like this, to face judgment like this, in verse two, what Jesus says is shocking to them. Do you think, verse two and three, do you think the Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered this way? No, I tell you, unless you repent, you all will likewise perish. What Jesus is saying here is everybody else who didn't die is gonna die too. They weren't worse sinners because they died earlier or died in a different way. It will face everybody. That's the, that's the earthly picture. It speaks to a heavenly matter. You think they were worse sinners because they died a little bit early than the rest? They weren't worse offenders. That same fate is going to happen to everybody who was standing there that day. Everybody. The, the, the issue is the threat of judgment faces everybody. Jesus asks this question and he says, first of all, I'm talking about eternal judgment. You ain't getting it. But he chooses to get to the heart of the issue. And he, what he's saying here is God may, let it, may have let some live. But the ones who died weren't worse than anybody else. They weren't some other category of people, right? It's gonna, it could happen to anybody. It's going to happen to everybody. They're not far worse sinners. And the point is, he's telling them, it's not everybody else who's going to perish for their sins. It's you. It's everybody. Unless you repent, you likewise will perish, right? It's not everybody else. It's you it's you. He brings up another disaster. He says this in verse four. Or those 18 on whom the tower of Siloam fell and killed them, do you think that they were worse offenders than any of the others who lived in Jerusalem? This is interesting because Galileans who were just mentioned were looked down upon by the people of Jerusalem and Judea. So he's gonna say, I'm gonna make this even more clear. Because you probably, like, we're, we're talking about some Galileans and, and you still have this category in your mind of this is happening to people who are worse off. And so he says, now let's talk about some Jerusalemites. Right? Siloam, we don't know much about the story, but we know Siloam was in the southeast corner of Jerusalem. 
Interestingly, look at John, in John 9, the question was asked, listen, we're almost done. The question was asked, who sinned? Salome was mentioned, John chapter 9, verse 7. In that same scene, that very scene, it was asked the same, a similar question. Who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was made blind? And what Jesus answers was, is it's not because of anyone being worse than anybody else. It's almost a similar answer when Salome is mentioned in another place. John chapter 9, verse 7, go and wash in the pool of Siloam. He tells the blind man after he heals him, which means scent, which is also interesting that right after he washes in the pool of scent, he goes out and tells everybody about Jesus, right? But the issue here is this. He says in verse 4, when, they fell in the, when, when the tower of Siloam fell, do you think that they were us offenders and everyone else who lived in Jerusalem? Meaning they're not any worse. The point is they weren't any worse culprits. Do you think that they were worse because they perished? Do you constantly look at the others who there is a, a tragedies befalling and saying they must be far worse sinners? And therefore, are you looking at the judgment that I'm speaking of, your guilt, the accusation before God, the coming of judgment, needing to go before the king and paying every last penny of judgment, are you constantly thinking about somebody else who, need, who, who is in that state? And he's saying, no, I'm talking about you, you, everybody. You need to repent or you will likewise perish, you. So let me close because of time and say this. Hebrews 9 says this. Just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. Matthew 11 says this. He began to denounce the cities who are most, that he'd done all these mighty works in because they did not what? Repent. Let me just tell you this. Listen. Let me, listen close. We're almost done. Just a minute. Repentance involves changing your mind about your own sinfulness. It involves Acknowledging God's law is holy and binding. It involves acknowledging that you've violated it. It involves agreeing with God about his diagnosis of your sinful condition. It involves telling God that it's accurate and just and that you're powerless to save one yourself from sin's control. Then it is to affirm that Christ is the only savior and to turn from sin to Christ for forgiveness, that's repentance, and that's faith. So let me close with two just encouragements to you in this way. I've had to skip over a bunch. You say, you skipped over a bunch? Okay, listen. When you see disasters, tragedies, what seem like judgments on the earth, Earthly and eternal. Let me encourage you with what this passage is telling you. You see, earthly consequences of sin. Let's take Ravi Zacharias for a second. You see that situation? You see that story? You know what you don't say? Man, he's messed up. You know what you say? If I don't repent, I'll likewise perish. I will face the same consequences to sin if I don't continually turn away from sin. I'm guilty before God and I face the same fate for sin. It's consequences of destruction, but more so appropriate to the text. When you hear God's words of coming judgment, of guilt before God, of hell, and I pray this for our whole community, the North Shore, if people would realize this, everything would change that you wouldn't say, man, they need to repent. Somebody else, they're far worse. They're in a standing of guilt. They're in trouble. But you would say, unless I repent, the only reason I'm, I maybe don't face that is because of, I'm sure I don't face that, is because of Christ. Unless you repent, I repent and put our faith in Christ. We too, we likewise will perish. Right? This is the issue of the world. And so let me encourage you to understand this is the condition that everyone faces. We all will perish if we fail to repent and place our faith in Christ. Let's pray. Father, I pray that, that you would take your word, your truth, and you would convict us and change us through it. This is the condition of everybody. 
It's not everybody else. It's not looking upon the condition of everyone in light of the message of judgment for sin and, and thinking that it applies to somebody else. God, but it's, it's looking upon it and saying, everyone suffers the same fate. Everybody stands accused. We are included, and unless we repent, we will perish. And God, I pray that we would look at this truth and we would say rightly, God, that we are guilty, that everyone is guilty. Everyone stands accused by the law. Everyone needs to settle with God, the judge, the king, or everyone will pay their own penalty for eternity. And then we say, thank you, Christ, for paying this penalty for us. Let us trust in you for salvation who paid the penalty on our behalf. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to this resource from the Field Church in Mandeville, Louisiana. We pray that it helps you joyfully make Jesus Christ your treasure. 